0: Hello and thank you for listening to this podcast. I am Zoe Marmara and you can find more about me on my webpage at www.zoeytrop.gr This first podcasting episode goes over the main acronyms in the vocabulary of a design team UI, UX, IA, ID and QA In the next 30 minutes I will try to explain what quality assurance in design is and discuss how teams and individuals provide assurance in the design cycle. To explain why quality assurance is important to user experience design, I will investigate universal design principles and the methodological and cultural perspective of user experience. In page 216 of the book, The Design of Everyday Things, 2002 edition. Donald Norman writes. Now, you are on your own. If you are a designer, help fight the battle for usability. If you are a user, then join your voice with those who cry for usable products. Write to manufacturers. Boycott unusable designs, support good designs by purchasing them, even if it means going out of your way, even if it means spending a bit more. Envoice your concerns to the stores that carry the products. Manufacturers listen to their customers. When you visit museums of science and technology, ask questions if you have trouble understanding. Provide feedback about the exhibits and whether they work well or poorly. Encourage museums to move toward better usability and understandability and enjoy yourself. Walk around the world examining the details of design. Learn how to observe. Take pride in the little things that help. Think kindly of the person who so thoughtfully put them in. Realize that even details matter That the designer may have had to fight to include something helpful. If you have difficulties, remember it's not your fault. It's bad design. Give prizes to those who practice good design. Send flowers. Jeer those who don't. Send weeds. In his book that remains highly influential, Donald Norman first coined the term user-centered design. And when he joined Apple Computer in 1993, he did so as a user experience architect, which was the first use of the term user experience in a job title. Now, because I know that the internet presents a baby of distractions, and you're probably in Facebook right now, or maybe you text in your mobile, and that in turn impairs your attention, or maybe you experience many problems paying attention, or maybe this subject is not interesting enough for you yet, I will highlight what I find is most important to remember so far in one sentence. In 1988, Donald Norman wrote a book which was a call to action for product designers to realize universal and user-centered design principles and by doing so, improve everyday life and minimize error and accident for product users. You may need to pause now to reflect on what I just said or order Norman's book online. I'm taking my time machine right now to the early 1950s to allow you to get a glimpse of the design period that is still relevant to our work today. And this is the period when the universal design was conceptualized. So, like Norman, designers noticed that by reason of their disability or age, many people were excluded from experiencing a product, whether that was a door, a kitchen utensil, or a cooker. A barrier-free period started in design, when professionals everywhere adapted the universal design principles. These principles were first published by Molly Follett Story, an expert in universal design of products, accessibility and usability. It is important that we cultivate a design mindset that strives to learn the history behind the terms, behind the conceptual tools we use today and how these terms evolved thanks to the work and collaboration of many scholars and professionals, such as Story, Mueller, and Ronald. The guidelines the story established together with Mueller and Ronald were more of an ethos. Ethos is a Greek word that applies to a set of beliefs. However, it is a very significant word for the designer because it brings forward the designer's responsibility. So now it's the right time to answer the question why. Do we need quality assurance in design? Because when our team designs a product, we commit ourselves to the universal principles of design and we make the assumption, the hypothesis, that our product adheres to these guidelines. But we need to validate our hypothesis to ensure that it actually does. But wait, did I hear you asking why we are committed to the universal principles of design? Why should we produce usable products? I'll give you some time to think about it. Just pause, minimize distractions such as your phone beeping, breathe, concentrate and think why we make usable products. Great. Thank you for taking some time to think about it. I appreciate it. Now let's see why we make usable products. In the last three decades, the legal and economic impact of social exclusion led to the implementation of standards and accessibility policies to promote the welfare of persons with disabilities. The European Commission has a common goal, a more inclusive Europe for everyone. Now designers are responsible for ensuring that products adhere to standards. Why do we make usable products? Because unusable products cost. No one wants unusable products. Not the EU, not the disabled and older people, not your clients, and certainly not you, excluding users has a negative impact in economy, so systematic design approaches were established, driven by the EU and universal design enthusiasts, for designers to use and for markets to blossom. That's one part of the answer. The other part is the ethical part. I'm sure we were all paying attention to our IT Ethics class. If you have never taken a class like that, now you have a second chance to order Norman's book. I'll just wait a bit or you may pause. Remember, reading books is good for you. Sugar and Facebook are not. So I've been reading this paper by Jensen and Vistesen with the title, The Ethics of User Experience Design. Jensen and Vistesen argue that we are taking an empathic point of view on the users, which I find from personal experience to be true. As a designer, you feel you need to establish that your design works. If it works according to your definition of what works, then how the product is used, is not your problem. Why should you care about computer literacy? If the user can't use a computer to their benefit, this is not your problem, is it? If they have a vision impairment, then they should just use an electronic magnifying system. Most users are like us anyway. I mean, how many disabled people do you see every day on the street? Okay, now let's talk about statistics. An estimated 253 million people live with vision impairment, 36 million are blind and 217 million have moderate to severe vision impairment. Many types of limitations and disabilities exist, stamina, mobility, and dexterity limitations are common to everyone. In 2011, about 25% of persons aged 16 and over in Europe declared an activity limitation. A 25%. But yes, I agree with you. I don't see that many disabled people on the street. Maybe because they are invincible to me. Maybe I just don't pay attention to what I see. In the same way that values and ethical demands in design are invisible to you. And you don't pay attention either. That is why I need you to pause for a while and think. Think that disability is not a reason for expecting less from life or from another. This phrase belongs to Facebook's first blind engineer, Matt King. While you browse at photos on Facebook, please know that he is working on automated alternative text so that blind people can get a more comprehensive explanation of what a photo is about. He doesn't expect less from you. He expects more. When we design, we design for all human beings. Of course, accessibility guidelines can be followed in a vacuum. With competition, costs, and tight schedules, compromises must be made. But we must understand that every compromise is directly related to a person's dignity and autonomy. Note that I will be addressing ethics in design, in the fourth podcast of this series, which is entitled Empathy in Accessibility. So far, we have discussed the mindset behind universal design and why it is important. We will continue with explaining the conceptual tools and systematic approaches that actually validate that your design benefits everyone. And this is what QA is all about. So when we design a product, we can only assume, make the hypothesis, that our product is usable by all. We actually assume plenty. We assume that the goals of stakeholders were correctly understood. We assume that we know who our stakeholders are. We assume that our product meets the business objectives. We assume that we know what the business objectives are. And we take pride in our work because we assume that it provides value. Of course, constant evaluation of these assumptions should be performed at every stage of the design process to ensure validity of results. We evaluate the design of a product using research methods such as user interface inspection. Software inspections were used as an effective quality assurance technique since the late 1970s. But wait, are we talking about QA in UX? Where's user experience in all of this? Right. I want you to think that you are watching a thriller movie. There's some mystery unraveling throughout the course of the story and you know, or you think you know, That there is an evil spirit in that family's house, but it has not been revealed to you yet. In the screenwriter's world, this is called captivation. You should expect that something is going to happen soon that will instantly hook you. And now it's time to generate your sustained interest. As a user experience professional, if you are listening to this podcast... You must be able to define what user experience is. What is user experience? Okay, I'm sure this raised the tension in my story. Are you feeling helpless, uncertain, overwhelmed? I wanted you to feel this way. I just revealed to you that this is a thriller story after all. UX is hiding to a dark corner in your house. I'd love to hear your remarks right now. I will just quickly relieve the tension just by sharing a personal story. Many years ago, I became a UX enthusiast long before I attended the HCI classes in the engineering department of my school and before I studied design interaction. I was just a web designer then and I was influenced by the many articles of the time because UX was and still is a trend. UX is a trend because it brings money to the industry. Learning empathy costs. Apparently, people can't produce empathy anymore. It's a thing, like laptops causing infertility in men. Technology breeds apathy, and the internet is making us all numb. Look it up. Anyway, I didn't have to learn empathy because I was like Asterix. I fell into the magic empathy potion when I was little. And that's why I reckoned UX was a great career opportunity for me. I knew people well. But what was UX and how did it fit into my design work? It took me a lot of time to establish what UX meant for my work. I realized it didn't fit into it really because I wasn't part of a team. UX design is not to be practiced in silos. Talking from a methodological perspective, UX is irrelevant to you if you are not part of a team, as is the case for any development methodology or framework. And quality assurance without a team is like psychoanalyzing yourself, which seems to me like a good thriller story. So, what is user experience anyway? Stop for a moment and think. User experience is what the term says. The experience of the user. The constant stream that happens during moments of consciousness. It is a posteriori knowledge, meaning that you experimented it with something or you were exposed to it, and then you learned something out of it. So you see, it entails the concept of experimenting with something. And this experience is yours. You can't really say that experience per se is the product of a team. Designers don't really produce the experience. Mental processes do that. It's thought, perception, memory. Emotion, will, and imagination that produce the user's experience. I think right now it's time to reveal to you something about that book that Donald Norman wrote. Donald Norman didn't write the design of everyday things, he wrote the psychology of everyday things because he was a cognitive psychologist. UX is actually hiding in your mind. It was there all along. Because we know how cognition drives experience, we can actually employ psychology and cognitive science in UI design to tweak the human mental processes And either provide a good emotional experience or a bad one. Because this is very much subjective, we call it subjective user experience when we measure it. It is in fact so subjective that in his 2013 book called Lean UX, Jeff Gothelf wrote that user experience is like staring at Vermeer's painting Girl with a Pearl Earring. I actually used that phrase on a couple of job interviews. So we have established that good or bad user experience is the result of teamwork. UX is teamwork. How do you monitor and validate the result of teamwork? Okay, at last, we are entering my favorite part of this podcast, which is methodology. To ensure that all team functions well, UX design should be incorporated into a methodological framework. For instance, user-centered design is a framework of processes, a methodology in which usability goals, tasks, and workflow of a production of a product are given extensive attention at each stage of the design process. There are three perspectives in UX that you should know. You can either approach it as a culture, as a set of tools, or as a methodological framework. If you work in silos, then you can only employ some tools and embrace the culture. That's nice. In the same manner, I admit, I only recycle occasionally. That's the same thing. You either do karate or you don't do karate. Don't stay in the middle pretending that you are fighting because you don't. You are alone in your silo. You see, from my point of view, the experience in UX is not only the users. What about the creative potential of the designers? The practice of collective creativity? UX practices... Allow the designer to involve more people in co-creation processes and that increases the designer's satisfying experience. As a designer, do you feel like you will have a satisfying experience in a silo? Co-creation means the presence of a team. And team means agile development. And there are lean implementation approaches to consider. The Agile team will leverage a common strategy, a model that already exists and this is what I like to call a play. My metaphor goes like this. Depending on the company's aspirations and potential, the theater is either small or medium or large. This is my metaphor for the project scope. The size of the theatre matters for your selection of the right play. Now, the play is your methodology. No one has to write the play. The play has been written and has been performed by many other theatres and it has established characters and a plot and dialogue. Some theatres perform the same play in the same manner that some companies follow the same methodologies. But generally, you will be performing many different plays across your career. As I mentioned before, the play has characters, and you are an actor. A director will cast you for a role and direct you. So you will have a role in the selected methodology. The play will be performed various times until the audience is satisfied. Your goal is to receive the award for outstanding performance by an ensemble in comedy or drama. What I like in this metaphor is that we consider the theatre audience to be a passive participant. However, this couldn't be further from the truth because in theatre, the audience plays a crucial role in driving and even participating in the performance. In the same manner, the participation of stakeholders in the co-creation and co-development of a product is vital and their involvement should be highlighted. What you need to understand is that you are the actor. You have an obligation to learn your character as long as the play is decided. You will adjust your performance many times based on how the audience reacts. Stakeholders are your audience, of course. Remember that the play is not decided by you. You are not solely responsible for the success or failure of that play. Your individual performance is not evaluated, but the ensemble performance is. So you have to be a team player. Methodologies come and go, and largely depend on the scope and company resources and vision. One important trait for a UX practitioner, specialist or generalist, is to be adaptable to change because, as Donald Norman says, The industry now comes up with a new term every week. It is also important for you to establish deep understanding of what your role is within the team. As long as everyone knows the methodology and their role in this well, then quality is assured. You just have to find the courage to implement continuous improvements based on your stakeholders' feedback. If practical results are desired, the focus should be placed on adoption of methodology and decision of guiding principles, success criteria, business objectives, the cooperation between key actors, evaluation, and efficient follow-up. I'll be glad to discuss methodological approaches further. Find me on Twitter or LinkedIn. Finally, this is the end of my podcast. I am Zoe Marmara and I encourage you to think of your role and responsibilities in the UX design team and of the benefits you can bring as an individual who strives to design quality products. I hope this podcast has inspired you to pursue the subject matter further. The next podcast of the Call to Action series will be about the representations of data, and the processes that the UX design team must go through to provide the right context and creative approach. Thank you very much for your time.